0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Today's program was brought to you by Blueprint, the original juice cleanse program to offer different levels of intensity depending on your needs and current diet. For more information, visit blueprint.com. On behalf of our family of hosts, staff, and the millions of listeners who have tuned in since 2009, we want to wish you happy holidays and ask for your support as we launch our daily in-house news coverage. Please consider making us a part of your end-of-year giving in 2013. Your membership donation is tax-deductible and the best way to show you believe in our work and the importance of a free, food-focused media resource. Consider donating today at heritageradionetwork.org by clicking the Donate button. Thanks for your support, and enjoy the show.
2: Hey, and welcome to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with a very special guest. I'm intimidated in a number of fashions and disciplines. Um, I used to think I was a math major, and then now meeting you and reading your resume, uh, it puts all that to shame. You know, I thought I was interested and involved in food sciences, then lugging around this book as well as Modernist Cuisine 1 through 5 and at home, again, put to shame. Um, People often call you... underachiever jokingly (laughs) um but you have so much more to achieve in your life this is this is a constant interest a constant source of inspiration for you and um i'm so excited that you're here to be able to talk about it from its impetus nathan merville thank you for being on heritage radio
3: well thanks for having me
2: yeah well welcome to brooklyn we're in the two stevedore shipping containers as studio um it's an interesting place to be. It's not your cooking lab. It's not 20,000 square feet of equipment.
3: Well, actually, our cooking lab started off as um, the uh, local Harley-Davidson service center. <laughs> and we bought it and remodeled it into a lab. Um, there still are guys who look like they walked out of a ZZ Top video coming up and saying, uh, where do I get the hog serviced? <laughs> have you ever thought
2: about having that as a supplementary part of your business? We probably could.
3: Yeah.
2: <laughs> so, oh. you know, I just want to show that you have humility. You were very humble in, in this, you know, uh, idea of modernist cuisine and cooking. And it all started from being a child fascinated by it. And at 13 years of age, apropos, you know, we're at that time of season, you cook Thanksgiving for your family. Nine. Nine, nine. years old. Yeah. Again. Yeah. <laughs> overachiever, <laughs> underachiever. Nine. Just tell me about that process, why you were interested in doing so and what you did.
3: So I grew up uh, right beside a library. Um, it was the uh, Montana, Montana Avenue Branch Library in Santa Monica. Uh, and we were just two doors away. And I loved that library. And one day, I found the cookbook section. And this is because I was kind of methodically going through the library, okay? It was not. (laughs) And the idea that people would tell you how you could make all this cool stuff. You know, I already figured out I'd like to eat. But you could, like, actually do that stuff. It didn't, like, come from some other magic thing that was impossible to go do. So I told Mom I was going to cook Thanksgiving dinner. And I checked out a whole pile of books in the library, uh, including Escoffier, <laughs> which it turns out is not a great book for Thanksgiving. <laughs> okay, <laughs> Who knew? Um, it, it, and uh, I went to the store by myself and bought everything, and then I cooked all by myself. Um, and uh, I could do a better job today. <laughs> yeah, But I, that I was sort of hooked on cooking from that point onward.
2: Was it – cooking specifically or was it that analytical that logistical mind of yours you like process
3: well i always liked science from the time i was very little um uh, there was a doctor who episode uh, the old black and white doctor who i think was the second doctor uh is stopped uh, uh by someone he says he's the doctor he says oh, doctor are you some kind of scientist and he says sir I'm every kind of scientist. <laughs> I thought, like, God, how cool. Wouldn't it be cool to be every kind of scientist? Um, and I'm never going to really be a, every kind of scientist, but it was, it was a thought. Yeah, but you're
2: slowly taking them off. I mean, <laughs> let's, let's quickly go through school because, I mean, you did quickly go through school. Graduating
3: <laughs> high school at what age? 14. College? Yeah. Um, I got a bachelor's degree in math. I got a master's degree in geophysics and space physics. Those are both at UCLA. Uh, Then I went to Princeton, and I got a master's degree in uh, mathematical economics. Uh, Then I got a PhD in physics, also from Princeton.
2: And postdoc with whom?
3: Stephen Hawking. Yeah, that's no small feat. Yeah, so my thesis was about um, uh, quantum field theory and curved spacetime. And what I actually was trying to explain was where all matter in the universe came from. Um, so it was, it was small little questions like that that I uh, uh, addressed. <laughs> yeah.
2: So where did it come from? Oh, it,
3: well, <laughs> actually. We have plenty of time. Go ahead. Um, so you know that quantum mechanics works, and you know this because 1930s scientists figured this out, and quantum mechanics is essential to figuring out many things we experience in everyday light, uh, in life. Uh, if you look at a candle flame, The color of that candle flame is created by quantum phenomena in exciting various molecules that you're heating up. Uh, The fact that um, a street light, which has got sodium vapor in it, has a more yellow-greenish tinge than a fluorescent light, that's quantum mechanics, 100%. Um, We also know gravity works. Uh, We know gravity works because we don't float off into space, and uh, we can observe the Earth uh, in the solar system and all these great dynamics uh, of astronomy. Uh, Newton first figured out uh, gravity at one level. Uh, Then in 1915, Albert Einstein figured out the general theory of relativity. Um, Boy, your food listeners are wondering where this is going. No, no, Uh, (laughs) there's intent in why I asked that question. So uh, Einstein figured out what's called the general theory of relativity, which was his theory of how gravity works in extreme cases. Newtonian gravity works fine here on Earth, but if you make uh, super, super massive things like a black hole, uh, that's where Einsteinian gravity differs enormously from Newtonian gravity. Well, since the 1930s, people have tried to reconcile gravity, this... Spectacularly successful theory of Einstein from 1915, with quantum mechanics, which is a, say, 1930s uh, invention, supplemented by many other um, discoveries uh, all the way up to the present day. And no one's been able to really reconcile those two things. And if you understood how to reconcile those things, you would understand where the universe came from, you would understand the fundamental nature of space and time you would understand why there is matter and why there is light. Um, It's very profound questions that you ask if you're a cosmologist. Uh, And I was super attracted to that kind of stuff, so that was the sort of physics that I did. Um, After getting a PhD at Princeton, uh, I applied to postdocs, I applied to like 60 places, because jobs were, even then, were very scarce, it it hasn't actually improved that much. And I remember getting this phone call, um, uh, and I heard this noise on the line. It was Stephen Hawking called me up. So immediately, I assume what anyone would assume, that my friends in graduate school were (laughs) messing with me, okay? I figured this is like bullshit, you're Stephen Hawking. This is literally what I say. Um, uh, And uh, the next day, I, I got actually a telegram. Only telegram I've ever got in my life. And this, this shows what an old guy I am, okay? I don't think there's anyone in Bushwick who knows what a telegram is. Oh, no, yeah.
2: The people are steampunk here. They, they revert back. They're anachronistic. No,
3: they may know what it is, yeah. okay, but they've
2: never received one for real. Nonetheless, from Stephen Hawking.
3: And uh, I got, uh, so I, I went to work with Stephen. And, uh, you know, there's a parallel universe in which I became a chef, There's another parallel universe in which I stayed a physicist working for Stephen, but um, I was supposed to work with him for many years, but a whole series of things uh, accidentally intervened. Uh, I took a leave of absence, it was supposed to be for three months, to work on a software project with a couple friends of mine from graduate school. Uh, Now, this is 1983, so this is uh, the origins of the software industry, um, there was only one public software company at the time, which no one who listens to this would remember. It was called, it's called Culinet, uh and it was a mainframe software company. Microsoft existed, but it had not gone public. None of these the whole Silicon Valley thing had started with um, companies like Intel, Apple, but they're all hardware companies. There' was no software. Uh, certainly no Internet. Uh, ARPANET and things like that existed, but at a very low level. Uh, and at the end of those three months, I uh, we'd incorporated a company around what we did. I was the CEO. I kept telling Stephen I was going to extend my leave of absence. Uh, well, after running the company for a couple of years, we sold it to, to Microsoft. And uh, many, many years later, uh, it's announced that I'm uh, leaving Microsoft or retiring. Next day, I get an email from Stephen. So should we clean out the desk? <laughs> are you Are you ready to come back? Yeah.
2: Well, you know, I want to jump back to why you just explained all that to me and how it relates back to food. Because right now I have the photography of Modernist Cuisine, a very large and impressive book, uh, which follows Modernist Cuisine 1 through 5 and Modernist Cuisine at Home. Um, And I've seen you speak a few times and you, you say something very similar to a lot of chefs that have been in here. You have to understand the craft before the art. Before you produce that, you know, emotive, creative thing, and you know, just talking in theoretics or conceptual nature about the universe, you like understanding the macro, the micro, you know, bits of everything before you build out, and that that seems to have always been your path. Um, we'll talk about Microsoft in a second, but it was leaving Microsoft that that impetus of wanting to go to culinary school but not actually being able to and spending time at Rovers in Seattle which must have been transformative in how you thought about food. Can you tell me about...
3: Yeah, so I I had been self-taught as a chef um, uh, amateur chef but into lots of things and at one point I said, you know, maybe I should really get some I'm so into this I should like learn for real and when I was interested in physics, I got a PhD at Princeton. So, shouldn't I actually learn this stuff for real? And so, I uh, decided to go to a culinary school in France. Well, I was working for Bill Gates at the time. I was uh, chief technology officer at Microsoft. Uh, and so, I said, Bill, I want to take a leave of absence to go to chef school. And, and he laughed and he said, I said, No, really, <laughs> really, <laughs> I'm not joking. Um, (coughs) so I convinced him um, then I had to convince the chef school so I applied sent an application I got this uh, phone call back Uh, sir, would this be a change of career? (laughs) Um, I said, well, not really just kind of a supplement and they said, well, yes we have these courses for amateurs I said, no, no, no I, I want like the real deal thing they said, well, you're not qualified and So I said, well, come on, think about it. So they called me back, and they said, we will give you an oral examination on the phone. And I said, okay. So it lasted like an hour, hour and a half, and they were asking me all of these questions. So one of them was, you're making a fish stock, a veal stock, and a chicken stock. How long do you cook each one? Well, I had read Escoffier cover to cover. I was like completely into all of this stuff. And so I said, well, you fish stock you cook for 20 minutes. A, a chicken stock you're going to cook for an hour, maybe two, no more, and a veal stock you're not going to cook for less than eight. You're like, well, all right then. <laughs> um, and it, it kept going on and on like it. You know, how many times do you fold puff pastry? I mean, this thing. So I get every question right. So now they're like, hmm, hmm. So now they're, they're, we'll get back to you. So they got back to me. and They said, well, you must uh, apprentice in a great French restaurant. I said, okay. Um, so there was a French restaurant in Seattle called rovers, a uh, chef, Thierry who I love, by the way,
2: Tom but, Douglas has been on
3: and yeah. they have a radio show yes. in Seattle,
2: the chef with the hat. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Uh, th- t- Terry is fantastic. In fact, I knew him before he had a hat <laughs> and I'd been an enthusiastic customer there. Um, and, and so I said, Hey, I want to come do this. And so Terry said, yes. And, uh, I went uh, one night a week, usually Wednesdays, I'd leave Microsoft at uh, lunchtime and get in my chef's whites and I'd drive over to Rover's and I'd cook through service, so it'd be like from noon until 10. And uh, this wound up being one night a week for about two years. You know, Sometimes I was traveling, some of this, I wasn't always there. Um, after a period of time The people who worked for me at Microsoft Got wind of this And uh, the first I knew that uh, I had worked on this dish And plated it up And t- Terry like was saying You've got a plate this time So fine, I played all of this And then um, they come out and they said Table six is very offended <laughs> You screwed up their dinner You have to go out there like, Oh shit So I muster my courage and I go out and talk to Cable 6. And of course, it's all these people who work for me at Microsoft (laughs) and they're just messing with me. Everything was fine. But, uh, you know, in a French kitchen, you start off, uh, it's a very hierarchical thing. It's a very uh, old school apprentice nature. Uh, Terry, the chef, uh, started apprenticing when he was 14. Um, That that was how that whole system worked. Uh, And in the traditional days, The and and it's by still to this day, in many ways, there's two words you need to know in a French kitchen. You you can actually work in a French kitchen without speaking French, so long as you know two words. We chef, (laughs) and in the classic French uh kitchen, the chef says something you're looking at your shoes because you're not going to make eye contact, there's that dominance hierarchy deal, and then you're supposed to do it. Um, and of course, I'm much more of a why kind of a guy. <laughs> yeah, asking why in a French kitchen. <laughs> um, and, and it's not that all French kitchens are that bad, but that was the general idea. There it was a master-apprentice system. Well, it also seems like you want to know the whole. And working in
2: a French kitchen, you know, going through the brigade system, it's compartmentalized. You know, yes. you start at Garmin-J and you work your way, you know, to apps to you know being on the line. And it, it, it's hard to conceptualize a whole dish until you've worked your way through. So that why is what drives people, but to ask that in the French kitchen is uh, almost taboo.
3: That's right. Um, so anyway, I worked through the various stations at Rovers. Um, now, at the time, the restaurant kitchen was so small that you were never out of physical contact with somebody else. <laughs> Um, (laughs) There was always somebody behind you, beside you, whatever. And in a funny way, that worked because you could never run into someone. You were already in physical contact. (laughs) So when I say work the stations, it's not like, oh, yes, they were that department over there and this one over here. We were like right on top of each other. But you learn tons of things that uh, almost no one bothers writing down. Uh, because if you 're in the apprentice system that 's how you learned it, and most of those people don 't write books um, and if you 're outside the system, you never saw it uh, and that teaches you a lot of stuff in a very hands on way um, much later, I was at this chef 's school in France, and it was uh, the way that this school worked they had restaurant chefs come in for a, a couple days at a time and do an intensive thing on something and so. We woke up one morning and we were supposed to bone ducks. And that's not like it sounds. It's, this, is, <laughs> <laughs> this is basically you cut away, you cut all of the flesh away and you unfold the thing. So although there's, you can leave the leg bones in if you want, you've sort of turned the duck into like this glove that would otherwise fit on the skeleton. You have the whole uh, skeleton taken out. Well, it happens. I had boned a lot of ducks um and uh part of that was rovers part of that was um i started making this uh, turkey uh, dish actually for thanksgiving um where you would uh, bone the turkey first which is great because you have this turkey that comes out and you can like slice all the way through it and like it freaks people out (laughs) so we start working i'm like going to town and the chef stops me he says you you there who taught you this and before i could answer he says you know a duck like a Frenchman. <laughs> so th- that was what I learned in that apprenticeship, and that's how you have to learn that. So modernist cuisine.
2: Prior to that, there was nouvelle cuisine. And let- let's talk about that a little bit first because what modern cuisine is is a departure from tableside service. There- there's composure in the kitchen, the chef actually plating the dish. Um, and again, you know, these things weren't brought to the forefront, you know what the photography of modernist cuisine actually does is show the skeletal uh, nature of food, the microscopic, the micro, you know, biology of food visually, and and that wasn't something that you saw because things were cooked in the kitchen and then plated at the table.
3: Yeah, it, that's an incredibly important point. That it, it, it's very tempting when you grow up with something, uh, you think that's the way it always was. Uh, You know, people who grew up today think that the Internet was always there um, because it was always there for them. And they're sort of dimly aware that there was this point, you know, maybe Thomas Edison's era where they didn't really have the Internet. But uh, most of the things of dining that we are familiar with were recent inventions. So no fine restaurant ever sent food out on a plate. It's almost impossible to believe if you think about you know, eating in a fine restaurant, of course food comes out on a plate. Of course it's already plated. But no, at a fine restaurant, the original idea was uh, trolleys would come out, meat would be carved at the table, um, big platters of vegetables would come out, and the waiter would put everything on the, on the plate, and they'd ask you, hey, you want some mashed potatoes? Quack, you know. <laughs> uh, you, oh, you want a little bit more? You want a little bit more white meat or dark meat? Um, that kind of tableside service, which was a direct extension of what aristocrats ate. Okay, so um, if you watch Downton Abbey, Downton Abbey, although that was a 20th century show, that style of being served is the way monarchs had been served for the the previous couple hundred years. Um, The first real restaurants that were fine restaurants happen... Uh, around the time of the French Revolution, because all the fancy aristocrats got their heads cut off, and so the chefs said, oh, shit, what are we going to do? So let's uh, set up shop and and serve other people. And they served other people the way the aristocrats had been served, with this Downton Abbey formal dining service sort of deal. And it was in the 1960s that the Trois brothers, at their great restaurant in uh, southwest France, said no screw this we're going to put stuff on in the, in the the kitchen because that way the chef can control the plate that way we can garnish that way we can do all these things and you, you try to imagine what going to a, a interesting restaurant would be like if the chefs couldn't control what was on the plate and that's just one example but all of this french fine cuisine is codified in 1903 by this guy uh, Auguste Escoffier, and he wrote The Great Manual, which then not only swept uh, France, but the whole rest of the world. Uh, That book is the single main reason that fine dining, anywhere on earth, kind of meant French dining, you know, for the next hundred or so years. And although he was kind of a radical himself, Escoffier, what he wound up doing was codifying something that made a very stultifying set of rules. Okay, so by the late 1950s, there's a few guys that are itching to be revolutionaries. And probably the single most important one is a guy named Fernand Poin. Weighed 300 pounds at least. Um, Very charismatic guy. Looks just like the fat French chef if you called central casting and say, give me... That was this guy. And he wound up... Because he weighed 300 pounds, he died young, unfortunately. But his um, kitchen started messing with these rules. And then he trained a whole set of other chefs that went out, and by the 1960s, there was a grassroots revolution going on in French uh, cuisine, where these guys were breaking the rules. And it. Uh, a few food critics started supporting it, uh, and it was called Nouvelle Cuisine. Now, in art, this phenomenon had happened a long time ago, right? In the in the late 19th century, you started having the French Impressionists. Uh, you started having modern architecture, modern, modern literature, philosophy. Uh, every aesthetic part of society went through a modernist revolution. The, in, in fine dining, particularly in a French context, Nouvelle was like that. And not only did it revolutionize French cuisine, it became a model of revolution for others. Now, the, the same thing happens around the world, that the American Revolution, the French Revolution, it, that caused a whole change to where all these monarchies wound up as uh, either being republics or constitutional monarchies where they they told the king or queen, yeah, you can hang around, but we're electing everyone. In a, So Nouvelle Cuisine in France, not only does it change French cuisine, but it inspires a whole set of American chefs to say, you know something, we can break our rules too. Uh, sometimes they were inspired directly by France, sometimes indirectly, but you have this great revolution occur. But then a funny thing happens. Uh, there's this great song by The Who that has, you know, meet the old boss, same as the new boss. Uh, many revolutions wind up getting captured uh, and becoming not the ideals of the revolution, but they become a, simply a replacement that the great ideals are betrayed by the guy that becomes the dictator. So uh, the Nouvelle Cuisine pretty rapidly elevated a whole generation of French chefs to being the the top uh, top dogs in France. And then they stopped innovating. They became as stultifying a set of rules as had existed before. It it was a, a very funny transition. In fact... Um, There there was a great Ten Commandments of Nouvelle Cuisine that was was put out by French food critics. And one of the specific – many of them are quaint to look at today. Like one of them was for a bunch of weird reasons at the time. They were like against um, pickled vegetables. And so one of their great intellectual principles was hold the pickles. (laughs) I'm not kidding at all. But another one of these great uh, principles was – don't be explicitly modernist. You can revolt, but only revolt to a small degree. You can hold the pickles. You can get the starch out of sauces. That was another one. No more flour-thickened sauces. Ooh, that's radical. Um, when those chefs, some of the chefs in this movement, started going beyond that, they were shouted down. Um uh, the uh, Alain Sandorans, one of the great uh, Nouvelle uh, chefs, uh, sort of served a dish where he used soy sauce in it. It caused an outrage. He was excoriated in the pages of Le Figaro. That wasn't French. Um, so around that time, some other chefs around the world s- sort of picked up the banner of revolution where they had stopped. And, and one of the earliest was a guy named Ferran Adria, He starts at a dishwasher at a restaurant uh, that was a bar and grill attached to a miniature golf course in a very minor seaside resort um, in Spain near the French border. So here he is at a miniature golf course, for Christ's sake. It's the the least auspicious beginning you could imagine. And his greatest desire is to be like these uh, Nouvelle Cuisine guys. So he studies them. He goes and eats at their restaurants. He's working. He's working, and he's innovating. And he he like pulls up to them, and he pulls up alongside them right about the time that they stopped innovating, and he just kept going. And so what I call is a long inter beginning to what what I call the modernist revolution in food. Is this idea of modernism that we saw in art and architecture and photography and. Uh, poetry, philosophy, where you take in a modern point of view, and a key element of that is to say, screw rules. Let's let's color outside the the box. Let's uh, do things which are are great, irrespective of what uh, the old guard thinks of us.
2: But still understanding those rules, because do, do you consider yourself a radical? Because I think what modernist cuisine does is actually give people an idea of what they're doing rather than
3: – Well, so that, that's, that's part of the modern, modern ideal. Okay. So I, I, I learned at Rovers and then in this uh, French culinary school, I, I learned in the apprentice system, and I did learn all of those basics. But as a guy who loves science and inquiry and, and transparency, I did want to ask why. So after I retired from Microsoft, I started cooking a lot, and I got more and more into – I had been aware of Adria and this whole modernist thing going on, and I kind of naively said, okay, great, I'm going to go find the big book. I'm going to go buy the big book that will teach me all this stuff. And Harold McGee in 1983 had come out with a book called On Food and Cooking, which was sort of a prelude, but it's a book that doesn't have any recipes. Um, so it wasn't the manual, but it was the intellectual inspiration to say, you know something, science has something to to, to teach the kitchen. So I, I'm looking for this big book and I don't find it. Then another thing happened, which without this I never would have done the books. I start, uh, I discover this uh, uh, internet forum called eGullet. And it had this amazing set of people on it. It had uh, housewives from uh, you know the rural Midwest. It had people from the great kitchens all over the world. It had folks in you know hundreds of countries, all driven there as a place where they could discuss all sorts of things. And so I started a thread there on sous vide, which was one of these techniques, and say, hey. The the, the original title of the thread was Sous Vide Recipes Wanted. And I said, hey, I want to get some recipes and get some intuitive understanding of how sous vide works. And I'd already bought every book on sous vide at the time, which was like three, and they were all in French, and they were all oriented around industrial food service. So it was like completely not what I wanted. And what I discovered is this big book I was looking for did not exist. And... There were practitioners who could share. At that point, people had been cooking sous vide in fine restaurants for ten years, uh, for some places, you know, five for others, you know, ten minutes for the latest convert. And people believed lots of stuff that was just wrong. You know, there was lots of sort of folk wisdom being handled, handed, bandied about. And I look, I said, no, that that can't be right, and I, I know that's wrong. Uh, So I started, I I did what I think anyone would do in this situation. I started writing code. And I I wrote literally uh, thousands of lines of computer code because I decided, look, the way to get an idea for how uh, to, uh, uh, how heat moves through food is, this is a well-understood physics problem, so I can write a bunch of equations to model how heat goes through food, and I will develop a bunch of intuition about cooking by writing code. Um, Well, it actually came up with a whole bunch of really cool insights. I mean, I I actually did get to understand this. And fundamentally, all the intuition that you develop when you have, uh, you cook with very high heat, much of that intuition fails you when you cook with very low heat. Because what sous-vide was about is cooking uh, almost at the final temperature. So, suppose you're making a medium-rare steak, okay? You take the steak out of the refrigerator, it's maybe 40 degrees Fahrenheit. For medium-rare, you'd like to have the, uh, uh, the center of the steak be about 130 degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah, maybe 125, 130, r- r- roughly that uh, temperature. Well, when you cook it in a pan, the surface of your pan is about 450 degrees Fahrenheit. So, I'm trying to make something 130 using a heat source that's 450. Okay? Well, how does that work? You have to time it very carefully. And if you time it just so, of course, you can make a steak perfectly medium rare in the middle. But if you're a few seconds early or a few seconds late, it's overcooked or undercooked.
2: Well, it's, you're dealing in the real world, too. You know, carry over heat. It's, it's, oh, it's, it's not
3: in a vacuum. Uh, it, so, there's lots of these things. It, it turns out that you, you can't wait until the scent. What you carry over what you're mentioning is suppose you put a, a temperature probe in the middle. You can't wait till it's 130 to take it off the heat because the sides are hot and the heat will soak in and it will overshoot. In fact you need to take it off when depending on the thickness of your stake when it's maybe 110 degrees because you're going to get you know, at least 20 degrees of overshoot. So I, I figured this all out by writing the code. Um, I started posting on eGullet. Well I got this enormous response from uh, both average people who were on there, uh, who were experimenting at the very edge of stuff, and great chefs. And they'd start emailing me asking me advice, which I thought was <laughs> both cool and, and kind of funny. Um, then the whole issue about food safety with sous vide came up. And so I did a bunch of research on that. I started posting on it. And, um, Sean Brock was this great chef in, um, at McCready's and now Husk, a couple other restaurants. Sean was just opening McCready's, and the um, the health inspector wasn't gonna let him open because they were all worried about their sous vide cooking. He says, "You gotta give me some information." So I email him a bunch of information. Well, two days later, I get email from the health inspector, who is a very well-meaning guy, and he has a bunch of folk wisdom about what is supposed to happen for food safety, which other well-meaning people had put a bunch of rules down, but they didn't understand how heat moves through food either, and they had a bunch of issues with it. So they, they had a bunch of beliefs that were wrong, and so I sent a whole bunch more information to him, and McCready's open. And I, you know, this has got to be out there more broadly, because I can't just email every time someone wants to start a restaurant. So around that time, I said, I should make a book that takes all this research I did on sous vide and the research on food safety, and oh, what the hell, let me explain all the rest of cooking too.
2: Well, you know, I want to talk about a very specific instant, um, and that is when something is done. That that very small window that you're aiming for. Um, and this is going back to the photography of Modernist yeah. Cuisine, this this book uh, that just recently came out, Why We Have You in Studio. But it's that hundredth of a second. It's that, you know, shutter. It's that blink of an eye that you're looking for while cooking. You're looking for that perfection. And In this book, you do that same thing, to show that instant, that moment when something is done, when it's right, when it's precise, when it's total.
3: So when we decided to write the book, or when I decided to write the book, I thought the best way I could describe that moment and describe the process of cooking would be to show people. But that means I need to show them this magic view inside their food, inside their pots and pans, or even inside their oven. And I could tell them about it, but if I tell them about it, it's going to be a bunch of long, difficult text, and it's not clear anyone's going to read it. Um, Whereas if I could show them, it would be transparent. It would be also, if I made it beautiful, which was a tall order, but if I could make it beautiful enough, I could get people intrigued who might otherwise say, you know, I don't really want to learn state-of-the-art cooking techniques. That's that's intimidating. Or, hey, I'm a chef. I don't want to learn about physics. I want to cook. But, hey, if I show you a great photograph, maybe I can get you involved. And if I can get you involved enough to read the caption of the photo, maybe you'll read the text. And that, I've, then my hook's in, buddy. But now, now I got you. We're going to take
2: a quick break, actually, and come back, and rather than just telling them, we're going to show them what's what. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We'll be right back.
1: Blueprint is the original juice cleanse program to offer different levels of intensity depending on your needs and current diet. Designed to purify and detoxify, Blueprint Cleanse is made from the freshest, 100% raw and USDA certified organic ingredients, cold pressed to retain nutrients and flavor. Blueprint also offers a line of organic juices, cold pressed and raw, in a variety of fruit and vegetable combinations and available in individual bottles. Blueprint Cleanse is available at Whole Foods Market and many other retailers across the U.S. To learn more about their line of organic cleanses, juices, and other products, visit them today at Blueprint.com or call them at 866-774-6831. That's 866-774-6831. Work hard. Play hard. Cleanse. Repeat. Repeat.
2: Welcome back to the Food Scene on Heritage Radio I'm your host, Michael Harlander. turkel here today with Nathan Mervold of Modernist Cuisine. And next to me, literally next to me on its own chair, is the photography of Modernist Cuisine. Um, this book is perfect in, in the sense that, you know, I am a photographer— uh, you know, I cooked for years. I'm interested in both subjects. And to, to have this nexus, <laughs> this amazing, you know, combination of those two passions, I almost felt like you made it for me. <laughs> so thank you for that. But what it does is is reference not only cooking techniques and uh, giving people an understanding of what they're doing, but it also references cookbooks and, you know, these visual cues that I've seen in the past. Uh, Michelle brock Mm -hmm. His book, uh, a lot of things were photographed on white, you know, had these, uh, it was in infinity in a sense, you know, there were no edges. And in a sense, this book reflects that kind of cooking, that kind of idea. Uh, Were those intentions of yours to kind of recreate those cuisines or that look?
3: Uh, Certainly that book was influential on us, but it it was more of an abstract idea, which is we wanted to show people a vision of food they had not seen before. And one element of that is that many food pictures, food photography, aren't about food. They're about some gestalt. They're about some other idea. And, uh, you know, we're having this uh, discussion near Thanksgiving. Uh, Thanksgiving is the classic example of that. When you see a Thanksgiving coverage in a book or a magazine cover, it's not just a turkey. It's turkey and all the fixings and the table settings. And it's this whole gestalt, Norman Rockwell, um, you know, idealized Thanksgiving that never was that people are trying to photograph, not the food. And I I don't have any quarrel with that, but there's something to be said for focusing on the food. And so one of our principles of of food photography is the food is what it is. And so we look directly at the food. It's not the... um, An element in a crowd that has lots of other stuff. It is the subject.
2: I want to geek out with you for a second and talk about how you approached building even a studio, a conceptual idea of what equipment to use and what what you know camera to use for this situation because it was it was controlled. What what was that environment like?
3: Well, we uh, I, I have been interested in photography for. As long as I've been interested in food, I got a camera as a kid. I um, uh, I shot with a five by seven uh, view camera for for a long time. Developed my own film. I, I was completely into it. But one of the ideas that we had was to say we're not afraid to use modern state of the art techniques. So all of the photography in this book is digital. And let me tell you the most important part about that: you can see what you got. Okay, there's a picture in here of two raspberries being dropped into a bunch of raspberry juice. And we've caught it at just the perfect moment where the raspberries are starting to make the splash. They're still dry, and these wonderful splashes are coming up. And when people see that, they say, well, God, what technological means did you use to get that? And my answer is you start with about five pounds of raspberries. You drop them two at a time and click the shutter, and sometimes it works. Yeah. The great thing is we knew it worked right afterwards. And there, the, having a very fast feedback cycle. You know, one of the things that makes the Internet so amazing uh, and Internet products, Internet websites, uh, Internet software amazing is that you get this amazing feedback loop where uh, somebody discovers a problem, it gets fixed that afternoon, it goes back, you learn, and that cycle of innovation turns very, very fast. Well, so digital pho- photography allowed us to do that it then allowed us to use a variety of other technological means. Um, uh, you get to adjust exposure super well. You can do either HDR, which is this uh, way that you combine photographs taken at different exposures to capture a wider range of light. Yeah, you know, Even a great digital camera can only handle about a thousand to one ratio between light and dark. Human eyes handle about a million to one ratio. Um, and so... What, the way we see a scene isn't the way a camera sees a scene we we've got some pictures in the book where we have a fire going and we we've got these burning coals uh we also have uh like a hamburger that's cut in half that's really well lit Well, the coals are uh, a person seeing that we see the the coals glowing and we see the hamburger and it all works. The camera would wind up. If it was exposing for the hamburger, uh, the coals would be black or, or, or dusky gray; um, they wouldn't be red. Meanwhile, if you exposed for the uh, the coals only, the hamburger would be totally blown out. So uh, we, we use that. Then um, we got into this thing called focus stacking, um, which uh, kind of has a long weird history. But the relevant thing is uh, a guy in the Ukraine developed a program called Helicon Focus which allows you to, to increase your depth of field. So whenever you focus on something up close, th- there's similar things that happen other distances, but for close-up photography, very little of the picture is sharp. Okay? Um, if I really took a close-up uh, of your face uh, with uh, a lot of lenses, your eye could be perfectly sharp and your nose would be fuzzy and out of focus. Uh, You see this in tons of food photography today. In fact, it was one of these things that was a sort of a limitation that then became a thing unto itself. So there's a whole style of food photography now where you only have the tip of the the pie uh, wedge is in focus and the rest of it is all pleasantly out of focus. It looks great. I'm not dissing it. But we wanted something to look different. So this Ukrainian guy writes his software that lets you take multiple frames multiple pictures each one in focus a different thing then it composites them all together it only takes the pixels that are in focus which is very cool and there's a whole bunch of math behind how that happens which we'll not talk about unless you really really want to know <laughs> We'll talk about after the show um, that lets you take pictures the infinite depth of field
2: see again this is a convention of of technology of, of the equipment that you have and you know, I always think the soft focus thing is because again, you said the limitations of certain equipment at that time, but also it was a sign of the times, you know, with farm to table and natural light. You had an instant to take a photo and the best way to almost do so and make sure that you have that correct exposure was you know, soft focus, like small depth of field. Trying to compose a picture that had almost infinite depth of field is that much harder
3: than it's harder, but you you touch on a really interesting point, which is uh, people who uh, have a meme or a pattern in one part often try to apply this another place. So uh, is it, I know a couple of chefs uh, who have uh, very concerned about farm to table and so forth, who told me they used film and natural light for their photography. And I'd say like what? <laughs> uh, and after talking about it with them. They, have, they had developed this idea that if they used film and natural light, that was sort of like having gluten-free photos or organic photos, that because they, they chose to do their cooking within a specific ideology, a specific set of values, they had to apply those values to their photography. And so for them, they, well, clearly i got to do something old school, so it's got to be film. Now, to me... I, I of course anyone has if you wanted to shoot with film that's fantastic I've got more film cameras than you do. Um but uh, the the fact is uh shooting with digital is way more green. Okay, the nasty ass chemicals used to develop col- color film are, are
2: oh yes crazy
3: S- slides. I remember the oh. smell of that
2: caustic material while Oh it's
3: it's horrible stuff. You wear there's a reason you wear rubber gloves, yeah. okay? <laughs> <laughs> it eats your skin. Um, it's poisonous. It's got all these other issues. So it, uh, these guys, and I, I, people I hugely respect, had decided that um, because they wanted to cook within a certain limitation, that the analogous thing for photography was to make that limitation. And to me, I, I say, well, why do that? I mean, so one of these guys says, well, what was your philosophy? Said, we wanted our pictures to look good. <laughs> and basically anything we could do that would make our pictures look good and give us a new different fresh approach, hey, I'm for it. At least we'll try it. You know, so another thing we would do is uh, called panoramic stitching. If you want to have a big panoramic view of something, you could try to use an ultra-wide lens but there's a bunch of limitations to that on resolution. So instead you can take many individual photographs and use software to stitch it together. Because, you know, the reality is in the old days you would do uh, uh, photography and darkroom, and that was all part of the photographic process. Okay, If you talk to Ansel Adams, he would tell you that the developing of the film and the making of the print was just as important as the taking of the picture. Well, the analogous thing today is to say, look, digital photography is both about the, the camera and it's about all the software you use afterwards. That's the equivalent of the darkroom. And so if I make a panorama by taking... There's one we made in the book that it was both focus stacked and it was um, uh, panorama, so more than a thousand frames were composited together to make one picture. Hey, I think that's completely legitimate because it's part of this extended notion of photography it isn't just the click, it's the back end part.
2: Well, in, in in that fashion, that that's realism in my mind. You know, being able to show that thing at that depth at that. Wideness without distortion, but then there's exploding diagrams, you know, then, then there are cutaways. So, what was the right. so, thought behind that?
3: So, we wanted, well, another thing I did as a kid, um, didn't have quite the same passion for it as the other things, which I'm not doing it anymore, is um, uh, I took cars apart and fixed them and hot rotted them and so forth. And if you took cars apart, particularly in that era, you had a Chilton's manual that showed how the engine all went together, and any mechanics manual like that has these things called exploded diagrams, where they show all of the parts separated in space, the screws have been shot out and so forth. Um, I tried to find out who originated the exploded diagram, and I I can't say definitively, but we found an exploded diagram in a um, Leonardo notebook. Interesting, yeah. So Leonardo da Vinci had exploded diagrams. Okay. Okay. We had this problem in the book of we had to show how to assemble some things, and the, the place that came in most into focus is a sandwich. A sandwich, a hamburger. You got a bun, you have dressing on the bun, then you have a whole set of ingredients, maybe your hamburger, cheese, tomato, lettuce, um, you know, more seasoning, top of the bun. Once you put it all together and you take a picture of it, you can't see any of those parts. So I, I thought, hey, let's do an exploded diagram. So we have the exploded diagram of a hamburger, which is maybe the hamburger you'd make in the International Space Station where there's no gravity, uh, where everything is floating in space in this magic view. But instead of doing a diagram, we did a photograph that way. So it, that is got, that's an aesthetic choice driven by a pedagogical purpose. I wanted to show how it all comes together and show each layer cleanly. Um, but to do that, you make this really cool photo of the floating hamburger.
2: The cutaways. Uh, I'm assuming when people first see them, they think there's a lot more science involved behind it. Like there's more fakery. Yeah, yeah, but there's not.
3: So uh, we wanted to to have this way of showing you the interior of your food while it cooks. So, you can say, well, what if you had magic, you know, Superman style vision, and you could see right through the pots and the pans and the food, and you could watch all of what happens? Well, that's what I wanted to, to show. And initially, I thought maybe we should do it with illustrations. Um, but then I said, no, screw that. Let's do it with photography. Let's, the, the verisimilitude of seeing real photographs. So, we started actually with some pictures of uh, uh, the uh, salads and. Now the first two were um, uh, steaming broccoli and boiling carrots. So we got some pans, and we cut them in half. Uh, At the time, I didn't have a machine shop, so I had to talk this guy into doing it for me. Um, (laughs) Later, I got a machine shop. Uh, So we cut the pans in half, and we arranged the food, and we took photographs of the food cooking um, while there was... uh, you know, of, in half a pan. Uh, over time, we then evolved a lot of techniques to do it. And when people see it, uh, their first reaction is, oh, you used Photoshop. And of course, when they say that, I say, well, you use Photoshop on every photo, Photoshop or Lightroom or some other thing. You're always adjusting color. You're always adjusting exposure. But most of the things people think we faked are real. Um, th- there's a picture in here, which we also show how it's done, of a um, Weber barbecue cut in half uh that we are grilling hamburgers on and the way you do that photograph is you get a Weber barbecue and you cut it in half and you (laughs) grill on half a burger on half a thing actually we cut about a third off not a half and uh people will ask me they'll say well you put a piece of glass in front i said no he said but didn't the coals fall out he said oh sure but Grant or Johnny or one of our guys will be there with tongs. They pick them back up. <laughs> when you cook with half a barbecue, you make a hell of a mess.
2: I think it's that same assumption when you say modernist cuisine, or I won't even use the phrase molecular gastronomy, um, that it's all spherification, that it's all you know sodium alginate, calcium chloride. That's a misconception of what modern cuisine really is. Well,
3: to me, it's an attitude. And it's an attitude first of saying, I want to know why. Now, a classical recipe or a classical apprentice system is, you know, a recipe says, do this, do this, do this. Don't ask why, kid. Just shut up. Do it. And that's very practical. I I have nothing against recipes. We've got thousands of them in our books. But I think it's also very rewarding and satisfying to ask the question, why? And then it's very satisfying to also say, why not? Why can't we do it this other way? Why not? Um, I was recently at a uh, a conference at the Culinary Institute of America. You you spoke there also. Night before the thing, there's a speaker's dinner. Uh, I'm seated with Gina Gallo, who's this uh, great winemaker from the Gallo family, and we were drinking her signature series wines. And she was saying how in her cab she was really trying to get these savory flavors and she really uh, wanted it. And I'd maybe had a little too much of that cab. <laughs> so I called for a salt cell, uh, cellar and I proceeded to salt the red wine. Well, the her look on her face and everybody else at the table, it was like you know they were ready to call security. Um, it was this sacrilege. But why wouldn't you add a tiny amount of salt to your wine? You don't serve food without seasoning it. Why would you not consider seasoning wine? So I put a t- tiny bit of, well, it totally changes the taste. Now, too much, of course, makes it salty and terrible. But there's, if you add it a small amount, what it does is it balances the flavors. What we perceive as flavor is a cacophony of all kinds of different things going on. And the reason we salt food is it can bring those things into balance. And a chef salts to taste in order to, to achieve the balance that, the, that they want. Well, this became a sensation at our table, and then Gina went to these other tables and was showing them. And what I love about this story is people are shocked at the idea that you might salt, put a little bit of salt in the wine. It, it, it offends some people. Why? And why not?
2: I know. So I know you're also an advocate for hyper decanting of wine.
3: Oh, that's another thing that shocks the hell out of people. It's. Um, it, you, you decant wine in order to expose it to air. It, that There's two things going on. One is there's some dissolved gases in the wine that you might take out of solution. It's called outgassing. Uh, another uh, issue is uh, there is oxygen that you're incorporating. The oxygen oxidizes some of the com- compounds. That's why you decant. And you typically decant in a um, wonderful glass container, and you pour the wine so that it sheets over the Outside, in a very thin film, that exposes the wine to as much gas as possible, while well, I was thinking about this, I said, "Hey, I can do better than that." So we pour usually about a half bottle at a time into a blender, put the cap on, hold it down tight, and put it on a frappe or the fastest the blender will go for like thirty seconds,
1: because
3: <laughs> and it makes it initially it makes a huge, frothy head like beer. Now, there's two reasons to do this. The first is, all of the things that you achieve with decanting, you achieve even more so with what I call hyper-decanting. But the second reason to do it is the looks on people's faces. Oh, my God. It's like you you exposed yourself at the table or or you did some other just shocking, shocking act. But, hey, it's only wine. You're going to drink it. I mean, why is it such a big deal? In fact, one of the great themes in art for the last century, in modernist and postmodernist art, is you surprise people at the crazy prejudices they already have. And you see that with the French Impressionists, you see that with uh, t- tons of modern art to this day, where they're trying to, the artist is trying to hold up a, a mirror to us to say, hey, You've got egg on your face. You've got this weird set of prejudices and preconditions. And the way I'll prove it to you is by surprising you. Well, this has that element because, hey, why... Now, maybe there's wines you don't want to decant. I'm not saying you do this always. But if you are willing to decant a wine, you should consider hyper decanting. And if you want a conversation starter at dinner, you know, try the hyper decanting or try putting a little salt in and just see what the wine snob that you've had over for dinner is going to say they're going to like whoa what the hell is up with this but that's kind of the point
2: so let's talk about the fine convention um you know there are certainly a handful of chefs in the u.s uh that do so moto in chicago alinea also in chicago wd50 here yep. in new york um what do they do that ask you make you ask why or why not
3: well there's uh those chefs and others, uh, well, first of all, they're each following their own aesthetic purpose. You know, If you looked uh, at the French Impressionists, Cezanne painted in a totally different style than Seurat, who painted in a different style than Van Gogh, who uh, wasn't a French Impressionist, but, but was part of that movement. Uh, each of these chefs has their own vision. But there are some common elements, and one is they're not afraid to do something if it makes a better result, even if it's not traditional. It's about making the best result, not uh, adhering to some weird artificial rule. Uh, Another uh, thing is to uh, have surprising combinations. Now, the simplest version of this, which many chefs practice, is they're willing to use unusual ingredients. Okay, So you can find a bottle of soy sauce in almost every um, uh, kitchen uh, in New York. And, you know, 20 years ago that wasn't true. Actually, you can find a bottle of Asian fish sauce in a huge number of restaurants in New York, and five years ago that wasn't true. Uh, people are willing to to use all kinds of crazy ingredients from all over the place. That's one small element. Uh, but. It, you know, another is what's called a deconstructed dish, where you have a familiar set of flavors that is sort of an homage to a classic dish, but it's done in a very unusual way. Uh, it, sometimes in a way so unusual, you don't even realize that it's <laughs> that it's that dish until you're a ways in. Um, Omar Akantu at Moto uh, served me a Caesar salad soup. You get the soup, it's kind of green, and... You start eating the soup, and it's Caesar salad. It tastes just like Caesar salad, but it's presented as a soup, which is like, that. that's a, a weird uh, way to do it. Um, it's a weird format to see something. That's a, a different kind of a surprise. Uh, using uh, ingredients no one's ever used before in some weird way. Uh, uh, Fran Adria was always finding, uh, this is a, the restaurant El Bui in uh, Spain, always finding weird, weird, weird things to serve that nobody had ever served before. Um, You know when people say they have a slip disc? There's these cushion-like discs in the vertebrae of your back. turns out tuna have them also. And so Ferran, driven by I don't know what, (laughs) that they were butchering a tuna that they were using, and they decided to split open the backbone, and they discovered that they, they have these little discs, which he started serving. And you get these things that look, uh, it's like a little, a little teeny bag. It, the thing it looks like to me, which is is going to sound weird, is it's like a small version of silicone breast implants, if you've ever seen one of those. They're like this baggie of salt water. Well, these are like these tiny little baggies of salt water. But the taste of the sea and taste of something of tuna. And you look at them and think, oh my God, what weird thing is this? Well, actually... It could have been a traditional dish if some traditional guy had ever thought of busting open a, a tuna backbone.
2: But do you need to be esoteric to be to have ingenuity now, or or can you find it in a burger, in a pizza, as you obviously do in these photographs?
3: Uh, absolutely, you can. And uh, one of the great principles that uh, uh, that I think is important in cuisine is any dish is worthy of your attention and is worthy of con- of considering at the ultimate level. Um, you know, we're speaking here inside a fantastic uh, pizza place <laughs> in the broadest sense, or uh, R- Roberta's. Uh, pizza or um, hamburgers, there's no reason that a hamburger should be relegated as a low-end dish and something else should be elevated, and so that's a proper dish. In fact, a, a funny thing is many... Uh, traditional dishes of Europe that were peasant cuisine, uh, bouillabaisse, um, cassoulet, uh, many different little uh, things in Italy, those have been elevated to this level of great gastronomic uh, heights. And you'll find uh, American gourmets who, particularly of a certain age, who, oh yes, that's fine dining, but hamburgers aren't. Barbecue aren't. That's trailer trash food. Bullshit. Hamburgers or great barbecue or pizza, those dishes are absolutely every bit as legitimate as something which happens to be a little bit older that someone has made a big deal out of. Um, So in uh, modernist cuisine, we have this whole section that's dedicated to uh, American barbecue as a hyper-local geographic-driven cuisine. Because it is. And people in the South would say, well, of course it is. Um, but we decided to put this whole map in there to describe this for people who weren't familiar. And say, hey, any kind of food can be incredibly elevated. And there's a there, there's experts in it will then argue about the very finest points in the same way that you'd have... Uh, chefs in France in the the classic age argue about the finer points of one of their dishes.
2: So, I mean, with that being said, burgers, pizza, uh, old classical French dishes, who is your audience? Is it the broad spectrum? Is it everybody? Is it the common cook?
3: So what I like to say is that our books are for people who are passionate and curious about food. If you're not passionate about food, it's not clear why you're going to buy any of these books or spend time on it. And frankly, if you're not curious about food, I don't think I have a proposition for you either. Um, now, I didn't say you have to cook. Okay, Our latest book, Photography of Modernist Cuisine, is about the pictures. It's about looking at food. It's about enjoying this vision of food that you couldn't otherwise see. In all the ways we've discussed, the cutaways, the exploded diagrams, uh, two we haven't discussed, we look at food super up close uh, using macro lenses or even microscopes. Um, everybody's seen lentils? Most people haven't really looked at a lentil because to really look at a lentil, you have to get down to a lentil size scale. So we have a photograph uh, in uh, the book here where the lentils are maybe appear to be the size of a dinner plate, and you appreciate the amazing colors and textures of a lentil in a way you never do, just think, oh, yeah, it's lentil. Um, we have a picture where a grain of rice spans two pages, and they're big pages. <laughs> um, so it, literally, this single grain of rice is probably two feet across, 24 inches, uh, which lets you experience rice at a scale that when most people look at that picture, they have no idea what it is.
2: And what amazes you more, nature or science and technology?
3: Well, they're the same thing. Um, I. There was an interview I had with someone from the UK a reporter who said, "Well, uh what made you think you needed to put science in the kitchen?" And I said, "Excuse me? Science was already there. I'm taking ignorance out of the kitchen." Because of course the laws of nature are all around us. Science is the uh, the the mission of science that it's an endeavor to discover what the laws that govern nature are, uh, so science is the study of nature in a particular way. Okay, you can study nature at level in ways that aren't, and enjoy nature in ways that aren't scientific, but science is is honoring nature by discovering its laws, and technology is a way to say now that I understand the laws of nature, how can I use those in a practical way to achieve some end. And I I view those as intellectualizing nature in a very specific way.
2: And it's bookended now, Modernist Cuisine 1 through 5, At Home, the photography of Nathan Mervold. Thank you so much for being here. But before we go, I want to say that we have this beautiful, large format book in front of us. And is there any kind of like theoretical math equation that you haven't solved yet that you'd like a viewer to... You know, assist you on <laughs> and they could win the book, therefore, or should they name the 10 principles of modern cuisine? Um, I, I want to make sure that the right person gets this book because they have to, again, be that curious cook.
3: Um, well, solving Goldbach's conjecture would be an amazing <laughs> thing. Um, actually, a lot of progress was made recently on that. But
2: That's not- the integers and in prime number?
3: So this is one of the hardest problems in math that you could explain to a, um, a 10-year-old, uh, which is uh, prime numbers are numbers that you can't divide. And this guy Goldbach came up with this conjecture that every even number is the sum of two-odd primes. Um, and it, it works. I mean, uh, you know, so 4 is the sum of 1 and 3, and you can try it all you like every every idea every one you think of it works proving that turns out to be amazingly difficult but i don't really want to i i th- this book might grow old <laughs> long before then so i'm not seriously proposing that uh i i think the criteria is up to you
2: just email us and you get the book no thought necessary because there's plenty of heady stuff in here again nathan merveld modernist cuisine You've been listening to The Food Scene on radio network.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Hope to have you back here next Tuesday at 3.
1: Cheers. Thanks for listening to this program on heritage radio Network.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio.